This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, for all but three of the last 46 years, Congress has failed to pass a budget on time, forcing the government to operate under continuing resolutions, creating uncertainty and delays for the Defense Department. And millions of Americans contract foodborne diseases every year. How one FDA official transformed the way outbreaks are investigated and prevented. Then, federally funded researchers are developing technology to use brain signals to control machines. But it comes with security and ethical concerns. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Since 2012, 47 continuing resolutions have been enacted. They temporarily extend current spending levels until Congress agrees on a budget. Elaine McCusker is former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, Comptroller. She's currently a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Elaine, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on on this important topic. So is this the new normal? And I mean, since it happens all the time, isn't the Defense Department expecting it? I mean, I think the Defense Department does expect it, and the Defense Department is incredibly good at planning, and particularly contingency planning. It has a very creative uh, financial management workforce. But that does not mean that we don't have immediate, mid, and long-term damage from continuing resolutions, particularly on the national security workforce, all the businesses and communities that support it. And so the Department of Defense is very concerned about continuing resolutions, but honestly, I think all taxpayers should hate them too, because they are waste time and money that should go to our security. So let's, let's talk about that, Elaine, the, the practical implications of the Defense Department operating under a CR. What actually happens? So they're essentially provided a continuation of last year's funding and priorities until a new appropriation is passed. They can't start anything new. They can't do production increases. They can't do the modernization that is needed to keep our military competitive. And for the Defense Department itself, even though CRs impact all federal departments and agencies, the most critical, in my opinion, is defense, which has spent 1,500 days under CR since 2010. That's more than four years in total um, time of wasted time and money that should be spent on our security. And I often hear people say that so long as the um, annual appropriation is eventually passed, everything will be okay. That's just not true. You cannot buy back that money and that time that you've lost during um, when you're you're basically incrementally funding everything. And, and I think. Sorry, and you said that um, CRs end up costing taxpayers more in the long run. How does that how does that happen? A couple of reasons. First, as you're continuing what you did last year and you can't start anything new, and as a matter of fact, the draft of the continuing re resolution that Congress um, is going to is going to look at actually specifically says that um, you have to continue what you're doing and only what you're doing in a limited manner until they pass the appropriations bill. And if you do the math on this, which I think is useful for people to kind of understand what we're really talking about, you're talking about about $207 million in lost buying power per day under a continuing resolution. And this first one, which we understand is going to go till December 16th, that's 77 days or close to $16 billion in lost buying power during that time frame. 
that amount of money, just to put it in context, could buy 24 F-15 EX aircraft, plus two Virginia-class submarines, plus two Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, all capabilities that are critical to our national defense and to our competitiveness against what the department itself calls our pacing challenge of China. And Air Force uh, Chief of Staff General Brown said this. He said, quote, all the money in the world cannot buy more time. Time is irrecoverable. And when you're working to keep pace against well-resourced and focused competitors, time matters. What do you take from that, Elaine? I mean, I think he's exactly right. And that's kind of my point. I mean, I think people think that, um, you know, we can kind of just limp along on continuing resolutions because we're used to doing so, but they forget sort of the real time and cumulative effects of doing that. And, and you're losing your time and your competitiveness. You don't even plan on awarding major contracts in the first half of the fiscal year because you don't know when you're going to get your um, annual appropriations. And so you're you're basically losing that time each year over t- over time. And I think, you know, another thing that people probably should understand when you're talking about the real world practical impacts is not only is the money in under a CR not enough, it's also often in the wrong accounts. So for instance, in FY23, which the fiscal year that starts on October 1st, there are increases planned for military personnel, operation and maintenance and research and develop, uh, research and development, none of which would be available under a continued resolution. And when you factor in all the challenges that we have, particularly this year on inflation and supply chain and with the industrial base, having the capacity that we need and the workforce that we need, all of these things are sort of compounded um, under under these impacts. You mentioned inflation because I did want to ask you about that. We're at near historic levels. So how is that affecting the defense budget given uh, the continuing resolution? Well, it first impacts the workforce. Of course, you know, the workforce is scheduled to get a raise under um, the annual appropriations and the department will do everything it can, I'm sure, to get its personnel supported, even though that raise is not enough given where we are with inflation. But on top of that, you have an industrial base that, you know, a lot of times is under firm fixed price contracts that did not and could not have predicted the inflation and supply chain problems that we're having. And the department itself acknowledged this earlier this month when it released a memo reminding its own workforce, the people that buy stuff on the the department, that they have flexibility to change these these rates if need be, because we just couldn't have known. But again, all that costs money, which you don't have under a CR. And Elaine, in your op-ed, you actually recommend not paying legislators until they can pass a spending bill on time. I'm pretty sure Congress isn't going to pass that either. No, you know, I think people have suggested this in the past, and it sounds like kind of a crazy idea. But when you look at uh, where we are in history, the fact that Congress has only passed, um, done its job on time from a funding perspective for three years of the last 46, about to be 47 years. And so for whatever reason, the amount of damage that's being done to our national security and to the country and to the economy is not getting through. And so, you know, years ago when people said, you know, we need to put the hurt of the CR where it will do the most good and we shouldn't pay Congress until they do their primary job, it sounded kind of crazy. But after time, maybe it's not so crazy. I mean, we have to be able to have something on the table that will get the attention of those who can actually fix this problem. All right, Elaine, appreciate you being on the program. We'll see what happens. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, an FDA official created a cutting-edge system to track and prevent foodborne illnesses in the U.S. He joins us straight ahead on Government Matters. Stay with us.
Nearly 50 million people in the U.S. get sick from foodborne illnesses every year. A system to track contaminated products and stop outbreaks was pioneered by Steve Musser. He's Deputy Center Director for Scientific Operations at the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the FDA. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. So before we talk about the system you created, I want to ask how, how it previously worked with an outbreak to identify it and remove it from the food chain. Okay, real good question. So the system that we replaced uh, this with is pretty simple. We, uh, it was a very uh, easy system designed to just look at humans, human illness. So one of the problems we had at FDA because we regulate the food side is we would know that people are sick, but we didn't know where they got sick from or how they got sick. And so what we needed was a new system, a much more high resolution system that could help us identify really quickly where a food was coming from or a particular food that was even involved. And so previously we would know it would take months and some, most of the outbreaks were never identified. We just never knew what was going on. So we created this new high resolution technique. All right, so it, it's the use of whole genome sequencing. What does that mean? Uh, probably the best way to describe it is uh, DNA sequencing like 23andMe. Uh, and you've heard about how um, people that have been falsely imprisoned have been uh, let out of jail because of DNA evidence. Well, we're doing the same kind of fingerprinting with bacteria. And so how quickly can you pinpoint where it came from so you can shut it down before more people get sick? Uh, almost instantly if we've done a previous inspection. So imagine we've done an inspection of a facility and we've found an organism outside or not, not on food contact and we have sequenced that organism. If it happens to get in the food again, we know instantly. We actually know within 24 hours that there's an illness. And so when we might have had tens or hundreds of people sick, um, now we get two or three, maybe. And this is saving lives because people can die from, from E. coli and, and other yep. um, pathogens. So how did you get the idea for this system? Oh, we tried lots of things that didn't work first. <laughs> um, <laughs> the American way, which is yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we were tasked uh, late 2000s, 2008, 2009, by then Commissioner Von Eschenbach with finding a solution that would help us quickly identify the source of the illness. And we, we tried a lot of things, we really did. And then we tried whole genome sequencing. At the time, it was very expensive, about $1,000 a run. Now it's about $50, $60. And when we first, we did the first experiments, everyone in the room went, well, this is gonna work. This is what we've been looking for. So you also oversaw the establishment of the genome tracker database. What yeah. information does that collect? Um, so this is really the most important part, and it's the heart of the, the network, is how to store all this data. So before, the data that was collected was very small in comparison, but now we're collecting huge amounts of data. It's difficult for me to describe how big, but uh, many, many times uh, what was collected before. And now we have, we're approaching a million sequences in the database, which is quite a lot of data. So we went to the experts, which is the National Center for Biotechnology, at uh, NIH, they're the people that do all the genome sequencing, where they hold all the data. So it's kind of a genetic library, and they're experts at this. And um, we partnered with them. They store all the data, so all the data is uploaded uh, into their system every day, uh, probably 12 to 15,000 sequences a week. And do you collect data internationally as well? Because what if uh, an outbreak starts overseas somewhere? Yeah, uh, really good point. So we, import much of our food that we eat. 80% of the seafood, 
fruits and vegetables in the winter time, almost all imported. So we do have a very significant partnership overseas, and that was the real important part of this network. Previously, the network that was established was just for public health labs. You had to be a member, which was great if you were just doing human cases, but if you wanted to tie them to environmental cases, you need a lot of people doing environmental isolates in food. And so the really interesting part of this and the great part about this is we created this open database where everybody could deposit sequences. Whether we were paying you to do the sequencing like a state or you were just a volunteer like another organization like Public Health England or, or France or Germany or Italy. So Steve, can this system be used to track other diseases and, and other public health issues? In fact, it can. And um, we had a really good project uh, about halfway through COVID where we were asked by our um, biologics group if we could predict the kinds of COVID variants that might be coming up. So we used the network, the US network that we had established at the States to start looking at wastewater. And we were doing this in collaboration with CDC, except we were having to look at something very different, which was the rise and fall of different variants. Uh, took us a little while, but we figured out how to use wastewater to predict and really observe in real time uh, variants coming up in the population and, and leaving the population. So Steve, what's the next big tech advancement coming um, in food safety? What would you like to see? Uh, well, I'd like to see the expansion of this network. Um, right now, uh, we're only about halfway. We have about half the number of states involved. I'd really like to see all of them involved. Um, we need a lot more environmental testing. So the next big advancement would be expanding our various networks and agreements with states and local governments to acquire more data. <clears throat> because it's really uh, an intersection of we have the um, human illness data and the environmental food data where they intersect. That's where we get the power of this technology. And you were a finalist for a Service to America medal. How did you feel? Great honor. Uh, to be quite honest, I didn't know much about it uh, when I was first nominated and when I looked into it. It was really amazing. Uh, I was at the Sammy's Awards uh, finals last week. It was, it was inspirational. I mean, seeing the people that 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 won and the people that were nominated was just incredible. Yes, a lot of uh, great public service out there. Yes. Steve, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming next, the future of war fighting could include brain-controlled technology, but it also raises ethical and security issues. Stay with us. The government has invested millions of dollars in research and development to better understand the brain. Part of that money has gone towards developing brain-computer interfaces, which allow people to control machines using their thoughts. Karen Howard is the Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. Karen, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. First, can you explain what a brain-computer interface is? Sure. A brain-computer interface is a device that's designed to read signals that our brain is producing during normal activity and translate those to cause a, another device to move. So, for example, it might help somebody who is paralyzed uh, use their brain to control a, a prosthetic arm or even to learn to regain control of their own limb. And how does it actually work? Is, are, is this a device that would be implanted or is it wearable? 
So both kinds of devices exist. The, the wearable devices typically use a cap or a headset to uh, pick up the brain activity from outside the skull and then translate that to the device that helps with the motion. A wearable, de uh, an implanted device would be implanted directly on the brain tissue. This would, of course, require surgery into the skull to insert the electrodes uh, or a more recent device uses a, a stent type electrode that is fed through the jugular vein up into a vein in the brain. And how long has this technology been around? I mean, how far along is it today? Wearable brain computer interfaces have been around since the early 1970s, and they've continued to advance since then, and, and researchers are finding additional applications for those. Implanted brain-computer interfaces were first used in humans, implanted in, in human brains in the late 1990s. And at the current time, those are all still in clinical trials. There are no implanted BCIs that are available on the market. And when people think of uh, machinery connected to brain signals, they usually think about uh, prosthetic limbs, which you mentioned before as an example. What are some of the other ways this technology can be used by the federal government? So we know that NASA, for example, is using, looking into using the technology to determine when pilots and air traffic controllers might be more prone to make a mistake based on the brain activity that they're able to, to sense using a brain-computer interface. The Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, is also beginning to do some research into how they might medically certify pilots who one day might use a device like this to control an airplane. And the Department of Defense is looking into it for hands-free control of a variety, in a variety of situations, such as, for example, controlling a drone on the battlefield. It could be a great advantage if a soldier, for example, that's moving across terrain with his, uh, with his troops is able to control a drone that's ahead of them scouting the terrain while also holding his weapons. So that's a, an area of research for the Department of Defense. On the other hand, though, there are security concerns. Can you spell out some of those? Certainly. Anytime that you're collecting personal health data, and our brain signals are personal health data, then there are concerns about those data being hacked or misused in some way. There are also concerns about uh, ethical uses. It has been envisioned that a brain-computer interface might be able to actually confer enhancements on a normally functioning human. So rather than trying to help somebody who has a disability overcome that disability, it could actually be used to take a healthy person and enhance their capabilities beyond uh, the normal human limits. And that raises ethical concerns, of course. And going back there, to the, sorry, going back to the security concerns, what could a hacker do with access to people's brain data? How could it be misused? So there are a couple of thoughts on that. One is that in the future, brain data may be translatable or usable in a way that it isn't currently. So right now, we don't know what people might do with those data, but the fact that they could collect them and store them might make them usable down the road. The other concern with, with hacking is that you could actually send signals into the brain-computer interface, theoretically, and perhaps uh, change the way somebody behaves or, or change their motions by interfering with or sending in false signals to the device. And Karen, is there any um, type of regulation for this technology, and should there be? So currently, the only devices that are in 
uh, sort of marketplace use are the biomedical applications and those of course are regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any medical device that's designed to treat a health condition such as for example helping somebody rehabilitate and regain control of a limb after a stroke that would be regulated by FDA. But if the device is being used for a non-medical purpose at the current time there are no regulations for that so they're being used for example or tested at least in the gaming sphere and then some of those other federal agencies as i mentioned are researching or looking into how they might be used but they aren't yet regulated in those spaces and what other policy considerations did you identify uh, regarding this type of technology one of them is that these are not plug and play devices. And I think that's a little bit of a misconception on the part of the public that you can you know, put on the headset for a wearable brain computer interface and immediately begin to control devices with it. In fact, everybody's brain signals are unique. So we all think in a different way. We, we might both, you know, our brains might tell our hand to reach out and grab a glass of water, but my brain is gonna create those signals in a different way than your brain creates them. So there's actually a lengthy training period for somebody to learn to use this device and for the device to learn what the user intends with their brain signals. So that's one challenge is that there's, there's really a substantial training period. In addition, there are concerns that the device might get it wrong, right? It's trying to interpret electrical signals or in some of the newer devices, blood flow in the brain and interpret what the user means by those signals and translate that into some sort of action. But maybe it misinterprets. So somebody who's paralyzed and, and unable to speak, for example, might be trying to give legal consent and the, the device might misinterpret yes or no on whether they intended to give legal or medical consent. All right, Karen, thanks very much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 1030 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.